you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to 1 Peter chapter number 1. And uh, thank you once again, worship team, for leading us in those songs. And uh, I really, really enjoy our time of worship. I think it just prepares our hearts and prepares our minds to receive uh, what God has for us from His Word. And, uh, and I hope you're ready this morning to continue our study in 1 Peter. This is a book about hope and about a living hope, a hope that matters, a hope that impacts lives. And uh, before we jump into our study this morning, by the way, if you need uh, notes, they are in the back. And uh, Brother Josue, if you uh, need one, just op- uh, raise your hand and Brother Josue will get them to you. And uh, that way you can follow along with the message. Hopefully you got them on the way in. Uh, but if you did not, you can raise your hand and Brother Josue will get them to you. First Peter chapter number one. As I said, it's a book about a living hope, a hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And we define, we define hope as this. We said that hope is the future glory of a life that is eternal and full of unrestrained joy with God. It is a future glory. Our hope is not a, a hope that we will experience in the here and now, but rather something that will be a reality in the future, something that will lead to not a life that ends with sickness or uh, perhaps with just old age or that uh, uh, ends in tragedy, but rather one that is eternal, one that will never end and one that is not going to be full of uh, difficult days and heartaches, but rather uh, it's going to end in joy. It's going to continue really in joy for all of eternity. That is the hope that Peter is talking about in this letter. Now, we've learned a little bit about what his aim is in writing this. His aim is that we might experience all the grace of God and the peace of God in our life. And we've been, we've been studying uh, that hope, how it came to be in verse 3 to verse number 5. We, we learned last week from verse number 6 down to verse number 13 that when you apply hope in your life, it causes uh, uh, you to rejoice. And that is a, a, an internal um, an internal happening. It's an internal thing that happens in your heart and in your mind, this of joy. You, you rejoice even in times of trial. And then the other thing is that you love God more. This is something that hope causes in our life of, of really loving God more. Once again, that is in the internal. That is in our heart. And, and then we identify with Christ in his sufferings through the hope that we have. We can, we can identify that way. In other words, we can say, listen, Jesus endured while he was here on this earth. He endured suffering. Why? For the hope that was set before him. In fact, if, if you uh, read in Hebrews chapter 12 and, and verse number 3, you, you find that uh, it was the hope that was uh, it, it before him that he endured the cross. And so we can identify with his suffering as we live with hope. But there's more that hope does than just on the internal inside of a person. There's the external that hope brings as well. In fact, in the Christian life, as we apply the hope, we not only have that joy and love and identity, but we also have hope that leads to action in our life. All Christians that are living through the hope that we've been given 
have an action in their life. There are decisions. There are, are, there are things that they do that reflect the hope that is within them. The hope that they believe, the hope that is in their future. See, when, when, when hope is applied, it, it begins in the internal, but it doesn't stay internal. It, it causes a chain reaction. Do you know what a chain reaction is? I was, I was looking this up as I was studying this, and, and a chain reaction basically has three sequen, sequential steps. Number one is initiation. And this is obviously the formation of, of these active particles uh, that, that have... Um, uh, these chain carriers that are activated by light or sometimes by heat or some sort of catalyst that, that, that happens. But, but you have that first sequence and any chain reaction is the initiation. Then it goes into propagation. And this is when uh, that, that uh, catalyst happens and it begins to propagate. It begins to, uh, to react and create more. Uh, and then it ends with termination when all the activity that's going to happen happens and then it's done. And uh, one, I guess, most uh, basic example that we might identify chain reaction with is, is um, the atom bomb, right? The hydrogen bomb. When, when the atom was split, it creates a chain reaction that unloads a ton of energy and if you know a little bit about your history, you know that there was an atom bomb that was dropped in Hiroshima there in Japan. In fact, there was two that were dropped. I think the other one was in Nagasaki, if I remember correctly, and uh, destroyed, destroyed the cities. Uh, just, just one chain reaction that started causes great energy to happen and cause great destruction and death. And it's called nuclear fission if you're into science, and, and, and that's basically what happens. Each particle creates another particle, creates another particle, creates this big energy, and then it's over. In the life of a Christian, hope is the initiation. It's what changes our life. It's what puts the Spirit of God to indwell in us. It's what uh, redeems us, and it's what gives us a future glory, the promise of a future glory, that hope that we received in Jesus Christ through salvation by, by grace. That starts a chain reaction that begins on the inside with rejoicing and trials, with loving God, even though we haven't seen God, with identifying in the sufferings of Christ, even though, even though it's difficult. But what else is the chain reaction of hope do? Not only the internal, but now the external. So this morning, as we study from verse number 13 all the way down to verse number 21, I want you to notice some of the chain reaction that hope causes on the outside in the life of a Christian. Notice what it says. It says, Wherefore, gird up your loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of uh, persons judgeth according to every man's work, Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, 
For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. What is he saying? What is the chain reaction that he is talking about? Well, let's jump into it. Number one, if you're taking notes, the first chain reaction is that hope calls us to live our lives differently. On the external, the effect that hope has as we live by faith is that it calls us to live our lives differently. Now, the word holy means set apart or sacred. The Christian is to be different, in other words, to be set apart. Now, holy does not mean odd. It does not mean weird. Okay, As Christians, we don't have to live weird. We don't have to live so odd that people go, what's going through their minds? And uh, we, we, we don't have to live in a way that, that makes people repel us. But rather, when he's talking about living differently, he's talking about living, living sacredly. Now, how do we do this? How, how, how is it that exactly that we live a holy life? Uh, how, how is it that we live a set-apart or a life that is different? Is it really maybe in the makeup we wear, or is it in the clothes that we wear, or uh, is it where we work? I mean, how, how exactly do we live differently? Well, notice uh, in, in this chapter, in verse number 13, that Paul or Peter says that we, we live differently, first of all, by preparing our minds. Preparing our minds. You'll notice the phrase there, gird up your loins of your mind. To gird up your loins was a phrase used in the Bible that very much applied to the culture of their day. Okay, we, we don't use that phrase in our day and age because we don't use robes. Now, if you know back then, right, in the time when the, uh, the New Testament was written, they were still wearing robes. Perhaps you've seen uh, some sort of um, uh, movie or, or TV show of Bible times, and you'll know that they wore robes that were, were pretty long, and, uh, and uh, they would usually have a belt, right, or a sash or something around the robe there that they would tie. And, uh, and then, of course, they, the robe wasn't the only thing that they wore. Of course, usually they had like shorts or something underneath uh, the robe. And, and what would happen is if they had to run somewhere, okay, uh, then they would have to gird up their loins, all right? If you've ever tried to run in a robe that's, you know, goes down to, you know, your ankles or your shins there, you know that you can't take really long strides, all right? Um, you, you take really short steps and, and really you can't hardly run very fast that way. To, lo- to gird up your loins meant what you would, they would do is they would lift up their robe and then they would make like a little bit of a, of, a, of a twisting knot there and they would tuck it into their belt and then they would run. Then they would be ready to go anywhere they needed to go uh, in, a, in a quick manner and that was known as uh, girding up your loins. Now, Paul is saying you need to gird up your loins, not literally, not telling them take up your robe and put them in your, in, your, uh, in your belt. What he was saying is gird up the loins of your mind. He was using it figuratively, and it was basically saying you need to get prepared. Get your mind prepared for living a different life. You see, what we do all begins right up here in our minds, right? Every action starts first with a thought with an idea. 
And that thought and idea leads us to do something. And in the Christian life, if we're going to live a holy life as God commands, if we're going to be different with the hope that we have, it calls us to prepare our minds to live differently. Now, this brings to mind, or it should for most uh, Jewish readers of this, it would bring to mind to them the night of the Passover. In fact, you can read about the night of the Passover in the book of Exodus. If you remember on the night of Passover, if you're not too familiar with the story, there in Exodus what happened is God is bringing the people out from slavery, the people of Israel. He's going to take them to the promised land, and leader, uh, Moses is the leader of, of the people. And he's speaking to Pharaoh, and if you remember the story, Pharaoh will not let the people go, and God begins to send plagues, and still Pharaoh will not let the people go. And finally Moses says uh, to the people, well, God tells Moses, I'm going to do one more thing, and I guarantee you he's going to let you go. Now go and tell the people that tomorrow we're going to be leaving. So Paul, uh, uh, Moses goes and tells the people, and, and God gives them instructions, and he says, what you're going to have to do on this Passover night is that you're going to have to kill a lamb, and it's got to be a lamb without blemish. It can't be spots. It can't have a broken leg. It can't have any kind of black spot anywhere. It's got to be, uh, the wool's got to be perfectly white. It can't, it can't have a bad eye. It can't be deaf. It can't be uh, um, uh, uh, any, any kind of malady in it. It has to have no blemishes on it. You kill it. You're going to eat it, and the blood you're going to put on the post of your door. And the angel of death is going to go through Egypt, and any house that has that blood applied there, the angel will not go in, and he will not kill the firstborn. But, but uh, and he'll just pass over uh, that house. And by the way, that's where the word comes from for Passover. It's literally to pass over that house. And those that don't have the blood, the, the, the angel of death will go in and kill them. Now, in verse number 11, I put in your notes of Exodus. This is what God, uh, Moses tells the people from God. And thus shall ye eat with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So there he's literally saying, yes, you're going to put your robe in to, uh, and tuck it into your belt because we're going to eat this and we're getting out of here. The idea was, hey, th- be ready to run. Be ready to go. By verse number 36, the Lord caused the Egyptians, the, the angel of death has gone, and then they, they looked favorably on the Israelites. They gave the Israelites whatever they asked. They stripped the Egyptians of their wealth, and they left. Now, this is the, the idea that Peter is thinking upon when he writes, wherefore, gird thy loins, the loins of your mind. Get prepared, just like the people were having to be prepared that night to eat and go. Get your mind prepared to live differently in this world. Because the hope that you have calls you to to live differently. The people of Israel were going to leave Egypt for good. God said, I'm going to take you to the the promised land and you'll never have to return back to Egypt. The promise that God had made them, I will, I'm going to redeem you out of slavery, and I'm taking you to the promised land. You can bank on that. You know, there's a great application for us as Christians that Peter's trying to connect with that story, just by using that phrase. Jesus said it this way, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. Peter is saying, you're going to live differently when you start thinking differently. We, we, we can't, the, the, the reason that 
Christians so many times live like the world is because we're thinking like the world. Because we haven't prepared our minds to think differently and to look at what God's word through the lens of God's word of, of what it means to, do what, uh, to, to be a Christian and to do what we do. Peter says, first of all, you need to prepare your mind. And then he also says, and be sober. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be prepared in your mind. Be sober. Now, this word literally means to not be drunk. Now, he's not really talking about, you know, bars here. He's not really talking about um, uh, drunkenness, per se, of that activity. The reason he uses the word be sober or literally not be drunk is because he's still talking about the mind. He says, prepare your mind. Now, when you're sober, you're usually in control of all your faculties, right? You're usually in control of your body. When you're drunk, usually you do, people do things that they, they never would do normally. You can read stories. I've, I, I read a story not too long ago of a, of a, of a person that got so drunk that uh, fell off of a cruise ship and died in the water. Now, normally, if you're not drunk, you're not jumping off or falling off uh, by, by any kind of you know, activity just, just that way. I, I've heard of people that get drunk and then they get very violent. I've, I've heard... Uh, of people that, that, that share that, hey, when, when, my, when my dad is not drunk, he's the most kind and loving man, but he gets drunk and he turns into someone very different. What Peter is drawing on is that picture. Be sober. Don't be, don't be out of control. Living different starts with thinking different, controlling here. Controlling your mind. As Christians, we're to be aware and focused on what this world is and what it is not. You know, this world is temporary. And so we ought to look at it temporarily as something that's not going to last. It's not our final destination. The value and the values of this world or what this world values fades away. We got to look at it that way. Peter then says, hope to the end. He says, wherefore, gird up your loins of your mind, be prepared, be in control, and hope to the end for the grace that is brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That, that phrase, hope to the end, means to hope completely. The Christians to be unwavering in the pursuit of what lies ahead in their future. He says, just, just bank on this. Peter says, don't, don't make this world as if it's everything, because it isn't. And a Christian that has the hope that we're talking about, the hope of future glory, will see things as they are. As they are through the lens of this hope. Let's see the world as it is, something that fades away. And they'll bank everything they have on this hope. Now let me remind you, Peter's talking to, to Christians, to people that were facing some serious persecution. Some of them were being run out of their towns, losing their homes, losing all the possessions that they had. Some were running for their life. Many were 
would be martyred by the Roman Empire just for being Christians. What does Peter tell them? That they have a hope that causes them to live differently. That hope begins by preparing their minds. But then notice he also says in verse 14, as obedient children, this hope causes us to prepare our minds but also to obey God's word. You see, living differently is not only thinking differently but also doing differently. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a line in the series of The Chosen. I don't know how many have seen the, the series of The Chosen, but at the end of, I think it's the final episode of, of season one, Jesus is going through Samaria and, and he's, um, he talks to the woman at the well and the disciples come back and they're talking, they're offering him food. He said, I already have uh, food that you, you know not of. And they're thinking, man, maybe somebody else uh, came to give him food. And, and in the discussion there, just in the series, it's not in the Bible, they're just kind of creating this conversation that's happening uh, there. And, um, and they said, man, this is kind of different. And, and Jesus turns and looks at them and says, Get used to different. The Christian life is different. It's different because we think differently, but we also do differently. Peter's writing to us that hope causes us to be obedient to what our Heavenly Father has commanded us to do. How do we do that? Peter says, first of all, you got to crucify those passions, those lusts. you gotta, you got to... Get your mind out of control and stop thinking about those things that are so temporary, those things that our, our minds can get so passionate about. I can tell you it's always been a struggle for me in the area of sports. Growing up, I loved sports. I played sports. And I can tell you for much, much of my life, um, sports has been pretty big, and especially football season. Man, football season is... is it's just the best time of the year, right? It's when every Cowboy fan has hope, right? Maybe this year, maybe this year. I remember the teens used to always get mad at me. I'm like, Pastor, you say that every year. This is your year. Yeah, well, it could be, right? By December, I'm not saying that. But usually in, in uh, September, I am. It's, but, but I can just say that so many times I can get so passionate about the sports team. So passionate about a sport itself. And sometimes I make sacrifices for that sport that I'm not making for God in my life. It's interesting. I think they say the average game lasts about three hours. Three hours. And I can tell you, there are times where I fall asleep. Right? But most of the time, if it's my team... I'm locked in. I'm watching and I'm, I'm at every second down, every third down, every fourth down. I mean, I, I'm focused. We, we got to get, let's get beyond the sticks. Let's go. Let's, let's go, team. They can't hear me, but I'm there, right? And sometimes I can watch up to two to three games in one day, especially Saturdays. College football, oh, man, easy. Every channel has college football. Different game, and, 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 and you, I can sit there and watch all day. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not sinful. But if I'm not careful, I can give my passion to that. 
and spend less than five minutes in prayer or even in the Bible. I have to look back and say, what's different about that? You know, Peter, as he's talking about being obedient and being different, he says, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. In other words, not doing what you used to do. Not, not, not thinking and living the way you used to live when you didn't know God, when you didn't have this hope. And you made these sacrifices because you thought that's what life was all about. It's all about fame. It's all about fortune. It's all about... But Peter says, but you don't, you don't think that anymore. You ought not to. The hope that we have teaches us that there's more to life than sports. And there's more to life than this world. And if you're going to do differently in your life as a Christian, it starts with crucifying that stuff, letting it go, dying to it. Ephesians chapter 4 Verse 22 to verse 25 in the English Standard Version says, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another Paul there in Ephesians was talking to Christians. He said, you ought to walk worthy of the vocation. Chapter 4, verse 1 says that. By the time you get to verse 22, he says, you need to be putting off that old self. In other words, you ought to be living differently. And then Peter reminds the Christian that we're to be holy in every area of our life. Verse 15 and verse 16. Now this is important. Because the Holy Spirit indwells us, we are able to live holy lives, set-apart lives. We've been set apart by the Spirit of God for a bright future with a, an eternal life and unrestrained joy. And because we've been set apart that way, He lives in us, and we ought to live now set apart that way. We ought to live holy lives. Can I say that for the Christian, there is no life that is secular and one that is sacred in our life? Now, those are terms that we use sometimes to identify what we do. If someone, for instance, were to ask me, what do you do? What do you work? And I say, I'm a pastor. They would say, oh, you're in like ministry. You're in this sacred work. Some people would look at it that way. And what they mean is that that's what I do with my time with my life. I come to the office. I study. Uh, I try to prepare. We, we try to get programs prepared and get ready here at church so that every, every uh, week we have uh, a way to worship and we have uh, what we're going to be studying. And, we, and, and that's what I dedicate my life to do, right? And then we would say if, if there's a Christian and he's, I don't know, working at Walmart, we'd say, oh, that's, he's got a secular job. And we'd say secular because Walmart is not in the business of advancing the kingdom of God as maybe the church is. And so we'd say this work is sacred and that is secular. And that's good just to identify maybe what we're doing. But in the Christian life, in reality, if you're a Christian, your work is sacred, all of your work. 
In other words, if you work at Walmart, the work that you do there is sacred. The responsibilities that you fulfill there are sacred. The way that you talk is sacred. What you share with others there is sacred. How you serve people in the place you work is sacred work. As Christians, everything we do is sacred because God says, I've made you holy. I love that he says the phrase, as obedient children. You know that children have the DNA of their parents, right? That's why it's possible, not all the time, as it is in my family, right, where your children could look like you, right? In my case, not so much. Yet, their DNA is my DNA. Because they came from me. And God says, we're his children. God's DNA runs through us. And God says, I'm holy. And the hope that I've given you is DNA that makes you holy. That's why Christians ought to be moral. That's why Christians ought to be ethical. We don't say, well, I'm just honest at church. No, you ought to be honest everywhere. We ought not just be people of integrity here, but we ought to be people of integrity in every area of our life, every day of our life. This means it matters what we do, what we say, and how we live. Christian lives differently because of the hope. Hope causes us to live differently. The Apostle John, someone that Peter would know really well, wrote this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. What was John saying? The same thing Peter's saying. Live differently. How do we do that? Preparing our minds, thinking differently. Not simply just thinking and knowing, oh, this is what God thinks about that. Well, if that's what God thinks about that, then obey it as obedient children. Not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust that you used to in your former manner of life. That you used to do in ignorance. No, be ye holy. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. What else does hope cause us to do? Hope causes us to remember that we will see our judge soon. Verse 17, if ye call on the Father, and if ye call on the Father, who without respect of purpose judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Peter is clear when he writes that because our hope is a sure thing, it's closer each day that goes by. Do you know that your hope is a greater reality and you're closer to it today than you were yesterday? You're closer to it now than we were when we started this series three weeks ago. 
Every day that goes by, we're closer to that day. But here's what you got to keep in mind as we get closer to that day. That there is a judgment coming for you and me. There is a judgment coming. And I want you to notice on that day that he will judge justly. God will judge justly because God is a just God. This means he's righteous. He doesn't play favorites. He cannot be bribed. He's not going to turn a blind eye to what is wrong. God's not going to excuse wrong behavior. He's not going to allow it to go unpunished. God must punish evil. God must condemn. Why? Because he's just. He's righteous. So if he's righteous, then sin has to be condemned. There's, There's no way around that. If he doesn't punish sin, he lacks being righteous. He would not be just any longer. Now, the Bible teaches us, even as Christians, that God will judge us. And it's written a couple times in the New Testament, probably a little bit more than that. But if you go to Romans chapter 14 there, it's in your, in your notes. It talks about this judgment. Now, the word for judgment is not in the same context for us as Christian as it is for the unbeliever. The unbeliever that will be judged by God will be condemned by God to an eternal separation of suffering forever. The Bible says they'll be thrown into a lake of fire where there will be suffering and gnashing of teeth forever. That is the judgment for the unbeliever because God is just. Because they continued with their sin, they never were cleansed from their sin, then their sin has to be punished. And that is the punishment. But for the believer that's been cleansed, that's been given this hope, then what is that judgment? That judgment is really a judgment where God inspects and rewards what we've done. It's almost like, um, I've heard people compare it to like a, a, a trophy ceremony, right? What happens at a, at a, at a trophy ceremony or award ceremony, right? Are we judging people? Actually, we are. We're judging what they did throughout the year. If you think about it, and I played sports, at, at the end of, of, uh, of a basketball season, they were usually award what is the most valuable player, the defensive player of the year, the offensive player of the year. What are they doing? How do they, how do they come up with that? Are they just like picking names out of a hat? No. They're watching every game what you're doing. And if you're going to be the offensive player of the year, normally it's because you're scoring a lot of the points. That's how they judge it. They don't say, well, okay, he's scoring the most points, but how many times did he throw it out of bounds? How many times did people steal the ball from him? They're not looking at the faults there. They're looking at what he did, the positive there. The judgment that we have before God is this, that he's going to judge us righteously for what we've done. Romans chapter 14 talks about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 speaks on this. Now, here's the thought that Peter's trying to connect with them. We're going to see him soon. How much can I pay you? Peter says, this is, you're foolish to think. 
You could buy this with money. Others think that it's by religious practice. In fact, Peter mentions that. It's not by silver or gold, and it's not by the traditions that were handed to you from your fathers. It's not the religious life that you can receive from others. In fact, Jesus condemned that in Mark chapter 7. People think that that hope and the merits and the rewards are going to become from really nice religious traditions. I went to church, God, I, I was there. And No, he says it was Jesus' precious blood. I love that word precious. It means, it's the Greek word timios, and it means costly. To pay a debt that requires infinite value, you have to have something that also has infinite value to pay that debt. If not, you can't. I mean, to put it in simple terms, if you want to buy a $500 phone, you can't do it with $100. You have to have something that equals that value. If there's an eternal punishment that must be paid, you need to have someone that has eternal life to pay it. And that's what Jesus did. It was his blood that had the infinite value to pay for the sins of the world. It was only his blood that could satisfy the wrath of God. Peter, again, takes us back to the Passover. It was, it was a lamb that was sacrificed during the Passover, and he describes Jesus as the Lamb of God, the Lamb that was slain, the Lamb who shed his blood, who was foreordained. In other words, before the foundations of the world, God knew he was going to do this. It wasn't like Adam and Eve sinned, and God goes, ah, what am I going to do? Listen, before he ever created Adam from the dust of the earth, God knew Jesus would give his blood. Peter says, it's that precious. That's what gives our hope the value that it has. Hmm. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first of the begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And I've made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's that was the prize. Hope remembers that. This morning, our hope is an amazing hope. Our hope calls us to live differently. We do that by preparing our minds and being obedient. So let me ask you this morning, how's your mindset? How are you looking at this week? I love the question that the vice president at the Bible college I, I'd go to. He, he, he'd always say this. He would say, what on your calendar this week will make it into eternity? That's a sobering question. What is it that you'll do this week that will actually matter? 
our hope remembers that we will soon see our judge. So the question has to be asked, if we're getting closer every day, how prepared are you? You know, God's not going to excuse our bad behavior today, tomorrow. He's not going to excuse our bad choices today, or at least the bad choices we make today, tomorrow. He's not going to overlook your pride or your selfishness. He's not. And Peter just said, our hope knows the price. Let me just say, if you're not resting on what Jesus did, by the way, you have no hope. Peter said it was his work that he shed his blood. I want to encourage you this morning, act on your hope. To live differently, to think differently, to be reminded that what you do will matter tomorrow. And just remember how, how precious, how precious the hope we've been given. I pray we'll live in that hope this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and for your truth. I, I pray that as we, as we meditate upon this reality of our lives, I, I just pray that we would live within that hope. And Father, I pray that we would be different because we are different. I pray that we would think differently. I pray that we would act differently. I pray that the choices that we make throughout this week would be choices that matter for eternity. I pray that you'd take the fading possessions that we have. I pray that you take the temporary time that we have on this earth and help us convert it into something that matters, that's something that is eternal. Uh, help us to live with that hope. Because that hope makes all the difference in the world. It's a difference to how we will live tomorrow at work, what we'll talk about, what we'll say. It makes a difference on how we'll treat people. Make a difference on what we do for people a difference on our priorities and what we think about. Oh, Father, I pray that this hope would take a hold of us like never before. I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.